Thank you, gentlemen. I did get the sense as you were singing of what it might have been like to hear the monks in the, the hallways and the, and the sanctuaries of those big stone monasteries just as your voices reverberated. So that was lovely. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob Jacobson, and I'm so glad you're here this Christmas Eve Eve, or in my family as we like to refer to it as Christmas Adam, because Adam came before Eve, so, you know. Then we have Christmas Adam, Christmas Eve, and then Christmas. So, our reading today is from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive a child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we have sung carols and read scriptures, I pray that the words that have been sung and spoken and your word, God, would speak to us. God, would your Holy Spirit just dwell among us right now and let your words come out, let my words fade away. Help us to hear what we need to hear, see what we need to see, and Lord, turn our hearts that they might obey. Amen. Well, this title, God With Us, reminds me of how I used to pray. I'm not sure if you've ever prayed like this. My prayers often went like this. God, I pray that you would be with us as we drive to this place that we're going, that we would get there safely, or as our kids were younger. God, I pray that you would be with us and you would help our kids not to kill each other in the backseat so that we don't have to put the arm of death back there. Uh, Or, uh, God, would you be with me on this blind date? Or in today's world, would you be with me in my Uber that I take to my blind date, that I would be safe in both places? Or probably one of my favorites, God, would you be with me when I take these final tests? Which I figured out God does like to answer that prayer, but he also says it'll go a lot better if you study. So there's that. Or possibly my favorite, which I try not to pray, God, be with us as we go Christmas shopping on this Christmas Eve or Eve Eve and help us to find a good parking place since we didn't plan Christmas presents better. But what does it actually mean for God to be with us? Because I used to pray that a lot until one of my friends said, what are you actually saying? That God isn't with you or with them? And that just that question transformed the way that I prayed and really transformed the way I thought about this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. 
you know, Matthew quotes this prophecy that is about 750 years old before the birth of Jesus. It's from Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And at that time, Emmanuel, God with us, meant it was, it was said and this prophecy was spoken to encourage the current king of God's people, Israel, or actually Judah, in a time where the, this big bad empire of Assyria was coming down and the country of Israel was separate from the country of Judah. Israel had no good kings. Judah had about eight out of 40 good kings, you know, roughly. And then this other country, Syria, was teaming up with Israel to attack Assyria, and they're like, you should join us, even though, because we're all small, but if the three of us team together, we might beat this other country. And it is really not that uncommon than a lot of what we hear today. Oh, if you position politically this country and this country, and then we can attack that country, and that's what was considered good politics of the time, but this prophecy was spoken to this king to say, no, you don't have to do it that way. Even though this situation looks really bad, you need to trust God, which means surrendering your control of this situation, but yet still engaging with me. That's the way to protect the people. That king failed to do that. And so then this prophecy of a child being called Emmanuel would come to be the sign of hope and comfort for a nation that went into captivity for 70 years. Now, let's actually think about that for a minute. It's kind of hard in our country to think about what it would be like to be taken captive for 70 years. But how would, and this is a question that we can all play in, um, so I'd love to hear your response. How would a, a child be a sign of hope for a community that's stuck somewhere that they don't want to be for 70 years. Be brave. There would be a lot of disbelief. So how would that child be a a hope or a, a belief in a time where you're stuck for 70 years? Ooh, maybe the God with us, that child would be the deliverer. Great. That would be hope. Anything else? Maybe it was just another sign that if that prophecy was coming through, another prophecy might come true. A rebirth. Tell me more. Sure, even if I'm too old to make it out of that exile, this child will make it out of that exile. You know, I've, I've been to a few countries that are poorer than poor. And even in the poorest of places, there is still joy around children. It's like, we're stuck in this place, but maybe, maybe these kids aren't going to be stuck in this place. I, I think there is a piece of that that comes to us and, and come, that, we can, that we can start to identify that how this child might have been this sign of hope or comfort. 
when I was thinking about it a little more and praying about it a little more, I thought about little children that run around at a funeral, like in, too innocent to know the proper, the proper protocol for a funeral that we're supposed to be solemn and how these children running through this place of grief is actually joy and brings a comfort to us. And if you were part of the nation of Israel, then this would be a pretty amazing story. You would hold this up and you would say, yeah, that was a sign that God was with us. But what's even more amazing is that Matthew points out this 750-year-old prophecy, it happened again. It was fulfilled again through Jesus, this Emmanuel, this God with us. Think about the story of Christmas. Because What made Zechariah, the priest that goes into the Holy of Holies, what made him go mute when he was doing his service in the temple? Or what made Joseph change his mind after he had decided already, I'm going to divorce Mary, we're going to separate, we're going to break off this engagement that was more than an engagement, that's why it uses the word betrothal, but what made him decide to change his mind after that? Or what gave Mary peace in the midst of giving birth in a barn or a cave or whatever type of place it was where there was no room for them or anyone else's home? For that matter, what gave peace and joy to the shepherds that made them run out into the fields after they had seen this baby? And what caused wise men to fall on their face in worship? In each of those cases, I believe it was this simple reality of God with us. They didn't experience what most people think about God. If you have some conversations with most people, they'll say either he doesn't exist, or if he does, he's a distant, far-off, uninvolved God. Like he created the world, but now he just kind of watches over it rather than actually being in the midst of it. See, what Christmas actually claims is that the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who started everything, is this personal God that stripped off his glory and became one of us, like us, yet in the form of a baby. Fully God and yet fully human, somehow without sin. Just try to imagine what it would be like to take from wherever you're at right now, whether you're, you know, 12 or 12 times 12, if you could live that long, and go back to being an infant. Except you couldn't bring any of your gained knowledge with you. None of the languages you know, or the life experiences you've had, or all the ways that you know not how not to date, you couldn't bring any of that with you. And you just had to start over. I, I wouldn't choose that one. And in some small fraction of a way, that's essentially what God did. He didn't bring any of his divine privilege with him. And he could have come in any form and come to any place. And he chooses to come in the form of a child, a helpless child, not in a palace, not in the temple. I mean, Jesus was a priest and a king, but to a barn and to shepherds at first. That is exactly what 
the writers tell us. That, that the word was with God, that the word was God in the beginning, and then the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Christians would say that is the best news ever. And I can tell you're totally with me. Maybe it isn't the best news. So why not? Well, sometimes it might not be the best news because God with us isn't with us if we don't believe in him. If you're there, I, then I can see why you wouldn't say that God is with you. There are some that do believe that God is with them and maybe even believe that God sent Jesus, but because of maybe your standing with God or your past or your present, you're not sure of God standing with you. So this idea of God being with you seems a little too close. You'd rather have a God that's a little more of an acquaintance. I think there are still others that that do believe God is with us and that he came to us and is now present with us in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But this Christmas is a hard Christmas. It's like we've got three of the four or five Advent candles lit. This Christmas, there's a place at your table or a table that you love that is unlit. It's missing. Maybe you're facing a Christmas uh, this year for the first time with the death of a loved one. Or you're facing the first Christmas because of a divorce. Maybe you're just in a place where you're facing a distance. But people you care about are still far away. And so this idea that God is with us in a time of hurting is really painful. And I don't know if you figured this out, but Christmas and the holidays in general are like a giant magnifying glass. It makes the good look really good. But when we have something that's hard, it makes it really painful. So there could be a lot of ways that we look at God with us as not the best news. But I think there might be one other option, and that's that we don't quite know what God with us actually means. So let's just look at it for a few minutes. Because if you look through all of the stories of the Bible, you'll see that when God is with people, they freak out. I mean, at the burning bush, God says to this person who's former royalty, now exiled sheep herder, like, don't come any closer. In fact, take off your sandals because where you're standing, it's holy ground. And this person not only takes off their sandals, they also cover their face because they know that the full-blown presence of God is too much for them to handle. Or when God was going to meet with these people he rescued from Egypt at this mountain called Sinai, he gave them three days' worth of preparation and instructions, which they follow, and then all of a sudden when God's presence comes in the form of clouds and thunder and trumpets, they freak out, and they're like, don't talk to us! They were just too scared to even be near the presence of God. And 
in 1 Kings 8, when the glorious presence of the Lord fills the temple that King Solomon had built, it says that the priests could not even perform their services because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled this temple. Now, here's a picture of the temple. And in the temple, there's this, this is the building temple. So you have these temple grounds that, that would be also considered the temple. And if you were a Jewish person that was going to give your offering or your worship, you might not even go into this place. You might just go to the outer court, and that would be considered with God and being in his presence, sort of. But then the priests could go into this inner room, and they could light these candles and the golden lampstands and the altars of incense. Those would all be written, um, going during the day, and the priests would go in there. But then there's this veil, this wall, then this curtain, and there's this holy place. And that's the place that, in the first Christmas story, Zechariah is chosen to go into. That is the place that the Ark of the Covenant is in, and these cherubim are in Solomon's temple. It's called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. It's said to be the place where God dwells. Although God can't stay in that one place, God is, in one sense, everywhere. He's also especially present in this place. And so, this place is so holy, though, that only one priest only once a year, can go enter this place on the most important Jewish day of the year. And supposedly, they would have a rope tied around their ankle in case that person was not in a proper relationship with God. They would die in God's presence and then have to be drug out. I, not to make a total joke of it, but you know how rules always seem to start because someone broke them? Because I don't find the rope thing anywhere in the scriptures about the temple. So it kind of makes me wonder if this actually happened. And then they're like, I don't know, do we just wait till next year? So I'm just saying, that doesn't sound very holy, but God was just that holy. And, and so that kind of does sound, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it does sound bad. But it's, I think, because we don't understand God's holiness, that somehow God could be so good and so powerful that, the, that this purity would come off as dangerous. The closest way I can describe it is sort of like um, if you were a kid and you had friends that told you to stare at the sun and see how long you could do it, you know, with your, which I don't recommend, guys, do not stare at the sun without, you know, proper, what, just don't do it. Right? Yeah, like not even regular sunglasses. You have to have special sunglasses. Even then, I wouldn't recommend it. But that's the closest description. The sun is this really powerful thing that's really good. We couldn't have life without it, but it's also dangerous. And humans have this fickle attitude towards things that are like dangerously powerful and exceedingly good. Okay, think about it. Like, we'll readily accept a chainsaw or a car as something that's both powerful and good. And if we need to build a road through the mountains, we'd readily accept explosives to blast away through the mountains so we could have a straighter, flatter road. Those would be both powerful and good. Or if, you know, we go way back to our roots, if we're farmers in the 1800s, a team of oxen or a team of horses are also both powerful and good, and we would readily accept those things. Notice what they all have in common, though. Well, they're all dangerous, and they're all good, 
and they can all be controlled. That's why I think C.S. Lewis was brilliant when he created the character to symbolize Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you don't know the story, these four British children are shipped out of London because they're trying to escape the dangers of World War, only to discover another land that is filled with a similar danger. But in this land, the Narnia has a hero. It has a hero that is called the King of the Wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea, the King of Beasts. Aslan is his name, the lion, the great lion. And the children, when they first hear of Aslan, they ask, is he safe? Sounds like a mature thing to do. It sounds like a thing an adult would say. And the response is, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. See, I think if you're an average, independent, American adult, or probably teenager, then you have a very difficult time giving up control. Precisely, surrendering control to someone or something that is dangerously powerful, exceedingly good, but cannot be controlled. And that's why I think God chose Mary and Joseph to bring God with us into the world. Think about it. When the angel comes to Mary and says, Greetings, you are highly favored to this young teenage girl. The Lord is with you, which means that you're going to conceive from the Holy Spirit this child, bring them into the world, call them him Jesus, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. She says, Okay, may it be. I'm your servant. Surrender control, actively participate, yes. Or Joseph, when he is considered divorcing Mary and the angel comes to him in a dream, he says, okay, he does what he's asked. He doesn't have control of the situation. He has to surrender control. But he also doesn't just fall over passive. He actively engages They're two brilliant candidates for the person or the family to bring the Savior into the world. And here's the deal. I think that God might be asking some of us today, 2018, to do the very same thing. Something that is difficult, something that could be painful, something that others might not understand, And if so, we have to fight the urge to take control of it. And we have to fight the urge to just go, oh, I can't do that. We have to surrender control and actively participate. That's what it means for God to respond to God with us. I mean, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator of the universe comes to us as God with us. And when you and I choose to surrender control and actively engage, everything changes. 
I mean, God then comes to us when we're sick and he's our healer. Or he comes to us when we're weak and he's our strength. Or he comes to us when we're alone and he's our friend. And even more than that, when we're in a time of hurt or a time of trouble, he comforts us so much so that we don't just feel comfortable, we comfort others. Or when we're in a situation where we feel lost and we need guidance, God just doesn't lead us home. He also gives us the way so that we can help others find our way. That's what God with us means. That's what he asks us and invites us to respond with. Surrender control. Actively engage. And the world has changed. That's what propelled John Neal to not only study scripture and create songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but then off, did you catch that? $3,300 a year salary to start an orphanage a school for girls, and a shelter for women who willingly or unwillingly sold their bodies. To come to those that are the most oppressed, most vulnerable, most exploited people in an island of captivity, no less. That's transformation. Because the story of Israel being in captivity and the story of John Neal being in captivity is really the story of all of us. We all face our own captivities. Some are bigger than others, some by our own choices, some by other people's choice, some because there's sin in the world. Whatever your captivity is, God is with you in it. And he invites you and I to surrender control. And he invites us to actively engage. And when we do, transformation happens, restoration happens, new life happens. That's what God is calling this church to be, to join with Jesus and transform communities. That's what John Neal was doing to the most oppressed, vulnerable, exploited people. He was transforming the community, not by himself, but with the Holy Spirit. And then, when the Son of God appears, we can rejoice the God who is the word, who was the word, who holds the world together, who spoke everything into creation, dwells among us now. And Jesus knew that to really fully be Emmanuel, it meant that he needed to be our redemption, our restoration he needed to restore this broken relationship with God and humans, which is why he's not just Emmanuel, he is also Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua, God, Yahshua saves. God is salvation because he will save the people from their sins and he makes a way for us. In order to achieve peace on earth, the Prince of Peace comes to earth and he doesn't put on a crown of gold, he puts on a crown of thorns to suffer and die and defeat sin and death and Satan so that we could be restored with God, have peace not only in ourselves but with each other to bring harmony between us and God and one day justice for the whole world. That, that is good news. It might be the best news ever. So this Christmas, do you know that God is with you? And are you with God? As the band comes up, would you just consider that question? 
are you with God? Because as I look back over my life and over my adult life to 23 years ago when someone said, if Jesus is Lord, you can't say no to him. And I looked at my life honestly. I saw all these places and shadows where I wasn't giving Jesus any say, any control, any lordship. Where he was with me, and we'll talk about this on Christmas Eve, where he was with me, but he wasn't king. He didn't have the whole room or the whole house. And I had to turn over and turn over and turn over, which is a nice way of saying, surrender this and surrender this and surrender this. But peace, goodness, joy, day after day, week after week, month after month, changed my life. Are you with him? If you're not sure you have this ongoing, personal, loving relationship with the God of the universe, then today is the day that you can renew that, restart that, or start it for the first time. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to bring all of your past and think you have to clean it up first. You just come to him and say, I need a savior. I can't do it on my own. I choose to surrender control, but I also choose to actively engage. And new life will happen. I promise you. Would you pray with me? God, as we come to you, as we come this Christmas, I pray that we would bring all of ourselves. God, our our mistakes and our sin, but also our hurt and our pain. And God, the stuff that we like to put in front. Maybe it's our personality or our skills or our status, but God, whatever we want to present first, I pray that we would present all of it to you. That we would come close to you and we would see that you're a God who cares. That you're a God who can sit in the longing and the waiting and the the wailing and the crying out in the times of loneliness and the times of exile and your God who can come to us in the times of celebration, in the times of community, in the times of exuberant overflowing joy. God, that you with us can take all of those things. You can handle it all, God. Thank you for being a God that is higher than our thoughts and more pure than our ways. And God, for sending Jesus to be fully human and fully God, the way that restores us with you, may we run to your throne of grace to receive forgiveness and redemption and hope and peace and life. 